Welcome to the bonus material of How in God's Name Should I Vote? I'm Andrew Palmer, and in the midst of pulling together the content for the podcast, I got to meet with some really inspiring people. In this episode, we're going to meet Max Jeganathan. Max was born in Sri Lanka and came to Australia as an infant. His parents were fleeing their homeland as civil war tore the country apart. So he grew up in Australia working out his identity. Max's story is the lived experience of a refugee and a child from a family that had experienced trauma growing up in a context where his story and his skin colour were very different from those around him. He found his way into the world of politics, serving various Labor ministers in government before eventually becoming one of Bill Shorten's advisers in opposition. Max shares the frustration of being ridiculed on Sundays at church for working for the Labor Party and then turning up to work on Monday and being ridiculed for being a Christian. This developed in him a desire to see that gap reduce by helping both tribes, Christian and political, stop throwing rocks at each other and start finding the common ground. These days, he works for Ravi Zacharias International Ministries as the director of their Asia-Pacific branch. I hope you enjoy the brilliant, insightful and hopeful Max Jeganathan. Thanks for your time, Max. Thanks, Andrew. Good to be with you. Max, you've had plenty of experience in the Australian political scene. Does faith have a place in our political system? Yeah, I'm, I'm very firmly of the view that it does. I know that you know it can make people nervous and can freak some people out. But I think there is a big difference between religion in politics and people of faith being involved in politics and public policy. I think it's a very, very clear and important distinction. And I think we need to bring a bit more um, sophistication, if you like, to our understanding of the role of government and our understanding of the role of faith in people's lives. I mean, this, the starting point that I would make, and there's much more to be said, but the, the starting point would be that every single one of us has a faith position of some type. Faith is quite simply you know, a belief that you have in something that you cannot deductively prove. Uh, and so we're all out there, no matter what our worldview is, whether theistic or atheistic, uh, we're all out there doing inference to the best explanation. You know, based on the best evidence that we have and based on our understanding of that evidence. And so to tell people, anyone, a Christian, an atheist, a Muslim, a Hindu, an agnostic, uh, to check their faith position at the door would mean that our politics and public policy sphere would be completely empty because everyone has a faith position. Uh, so I think it's important that we all bring um, the best of who we are and whatever we believe uh, into political discourse. And I think that applies to voters. It applies to people who are running for office. It applies to people in public office. Uh, and it applies to all of those reporting on and involved in public discourse as well. Hmm. You've spent time working with the Labor Party in Australia, advising leader Bill Shorten. How can a Christian make a difference in a major party? Yeah, well, I was, I was really blessed with my time uh, in politics. I worked uh, for a, a Labor minister when we were in government uh, for some time, and then after the 2013 election, uh, when we went into opposition, I worked for Bill for a couple of years before heading off to Oxford. Uh, and in that time, I saw people of faith from both sides of politics making a huge difference. It's easy for the disillusionment with the political system to lead to what I believe to be kind of unjustified conclusions that politics is a waste of time, that you can't change anything, that we shouldn't bother. Uh, but I certainly in my experience of you know almost seven or eight years working up at parliament in australia i saw so many examples to the contrary i saw 
uh, good people of of all kinds of different worldviews and political views um, working very, very hard to help to improve the quality of life of the Australian people collectively. And uh, many of them are doing a fantastic job in achieving significant reforms and significant changes. Is there a behind-the-scenes narrative that also occurs in Canberra where women and men of both sides of politics come together, particularly uh, women and men of faith, come together for mutual encouragement and lobbying in a manner that benefits the common good? Look, there probably isn't as much of it uh, as there could be, and whether that's a, a good or a bad thing is is a question for debate and discussion. I, I always think it's good for people of similar belief systems and worldviews to to come alongside each other, to support each other, and to to help each other better understand how a given system of thinking or worldview does play out in the public policy making sphere and in the political sphere. So there is so there is certainly aspects of it happening up at Parliament. Um, I think it happens primarily informally, which is probably the best way for it to happen. There are friendships that are formed. Uh, there are relationships, uh, professional relationships that are formed. And I think that can and has worked on several occasions that I can think of myself um, to the betterment of society and in a way that positively impacts the Australian polity uh, in a collective sense. I imagine there's another side to this coin as well, that there are elements in public life and in public office where it's hard to allow Jesus to take control for various reasons. Uh, How have you seen that play out in the lives of political leaders, if you've seen it at all? Yeah, I think this is the big question that we are all trying to get our heads around. And I think this applies both to uh, followers of Jesus and people who are not followers of Jesus. Um, And it really comes down to the understanding, firstly, of the role of government in society. What, What are governments actually for and what are they trying to do? And then secondly, and equally importantly, what does the Christian worldview say about the role of government and what are followers of Jesus called to seek to affect in terms of change in the political and public policy system? And on those two questions, I think we have whipped ourselves up into a bit of a lather in Australia where uh, we're very myopic um, from both sides of the argument in an equally. We're kind of myopic in that it's got to be all or nothing. Uh, So people think, you know, we've either just got to try and be legislating the tenets of Christian moral thinking into into parliament and into politics in a a policy context, Um, or the only alternative is to completely separate anyone of any kind of belief system from even being involved in the policymaking process. Whereas I think the reality of the human heart, the reality of the human mind, and the reality of civilization is such that it's far more nuanced uh, and complex than that. Uh, and we have to just find ways of sensibly understanding what Scripture tells us as Christians. And also, for those of us who are not Christians, we have to understand that what a person believes, a faith position, is actually part of who they are. It's not just an opinion about their favorite flavor of ice cream. And so it's uh, it's both impractical and intellectually not credible to expect people to leave their beliefs at the door. So that's why I think a culture of truth is important alongside a culture of civil discourse, alongside a culture of harmony, where we can all kind of bring our views on various aspects of public policy to the table, debate them, discuss them. And I think human progress in a collective sense has only ever come from the productive combat of conflicting ideas. I think that's a healthy thing and that's a good thing. And that should include people of all views and all religious perspectives as well. But I think for the believer, we need to be clear that 
the gospel of Jesus Christ and the message of Jesus Christ insofar as it plays into our modern world and our modern politics is not about infiltration of legislation. It's about the invasion and transformation of human hearts and human minds. And that that is the most important thing. And so the question is not so much what aspects of Christian moral thinking should be legislated or should be manifest in law. The question is, what is our vision for the transformation of hearts and minds across Australia? And what will that look like for people who are involved in politics? Uh, Christianity and the message of Jesus is is an internally transformative message. Uh, it's not an externally political message. And I think we uh, we both erode and misrepresent the gospel of Jesus Christ when we try and think of it politically in a primary sense. It's primarily personal and experiential, but then there is a logical outworking of that into every other public sphere, including the political realm. But we have to remember to put first things first and remember that the success of the gospel of Jesus Christ is only evident in human hearts. It's not evident uh, in public policy uh, in a primary sense anyway. To drill down into that for a moment, one of the genuinely vexed areas within Australian public life, but also it's proved to be a vexed area for Christians thinking about this particular issue. So there is an internal component here that is playing out in an external way, as you say. We've been thinking about using our vote for the benefit of others in this election campaign. What's your take just on this one issue, on the refugee issue, in this particular campaign, thinking uh, about that through the lens of your lived experience, but also from the perspective of how the gospel changes the public narrative, and how should we approach that issue as Christians? Yeah, I, I think, I mean, obviously, as a refugee, uh, someone that came to Australia in that way, I have strong personal views on, on this particular issue, and I have very strong and clear views on how I believe gospel-centred public leadership should look and how it should play out in this particular area of policy. But I think what this issue provides us with is a perfect example of why there is no one way to vote as a Christian. And I know that might agitate and offend some some of your listeners, but that's that's just a common sense understanding of political philosophy and a common sense understanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ. There is simply not one way that a Christian could be justified in voting. It doesn't matter which of the major or minor parties you look at, there are aspects of Christian moral reasoning, there are aspects of the model of society, the model of ethical thinking that Jesus sets down in the Sermon on the Mount. There are aspects of it which are both upheld and completely trashed by each political party. Every single political party out there, if you voted for them, would uphold and seek to uphold aspects of the Christian moral framework uh, and would quite intentionally not uphold other aspects of it. So the question for the Christian who is voting is, where do you feel pulled? Yes, in a spiritual and a moral sense, in an ethical sense, in a practical sense, uh, where do you feel pulled? To which aspects of the given parties that are in front of you do you feel that sense of allegiance to want to put your vote on this particular occasion? Uh, and that's why, and this again, this is an unpopular view and not a common one amongst Christians. Uh, I think a healthy democratic system that has people following Jesus involved with it, as all healthy democratic systems in my view would have, should have Christians voting in every which way for various reasons. So it just depends on what you particularly tend to value personally. But I think the big mistake I found many people making from all sides of politics while I worked in that space is 
they thought that there was a particular way the Christians should vote and a particular way the Christians shouldn't vote. Um, I think a healthy democracy has Christians running in all sides of politics in various parts of the political spectrum for various reasons. And I think there are varyingly good and bad reasons um, for a follower of Jesus to vote for certainly both major parties or all three major parties, if you like. Uh, And I think once we start politicizing our faith, then we have done something that is deeply unbiblical and contradictory to the gospel. We have tried to reduce the gospel to something that can be politically aligned. Um, Whereas this gospel is not a right-wing gospel, it's not a left-wing gospel, it's not a centrist gospel. Um, It's not even a trans-political gospel that goes across back and forth. It's actually an epi-political gospel. It's above politics. It actually transcends the realm of politics. It sits well and truly above it. Uh, And having worked in politics for some time, I can say very clearly from experience and observation that there are simply things that governments cannot provide people with. There are certain aspects of the human heart that a government just can't cater to. Governments, if they're doing their jobs well, are promoting and maintaining social cohesion and social harmony. Um, They're promoting and maintaining agreed community ideals um, of justice and various aspects of moral thinking. Uh, And they're optimising the health, wealth, education and employment outcomes um, of the people in as free a system as they possibly can. But on questions of, you know, self-worth, meaning, purpose, transcendence, identity, actualization, and all of those things, uh, even the greatest government in the world, just by definition of what they do, uh, has no business and has never had any success in human history going to those places. So for me, the important thing for us to begin with is to just put government in its place and put politics in its place. Uh, And as Australians, we seem to be drifting to a place that other parts of the world have sadly already drifted into, where we blame all of our problems on government and we also seek all of our solutions through government. Uh, Whereas the reality of the human heart and the reality of our existential experience as human beings is pretty obviously pointing to the reality that politics is neither the cause of all of our problems nor is it the source of all of our solutions. So I think that's an important starting point for us. Which brings me to the issue of Christian parties in the political game. I, I can understand from what we've been talking about that there's a valid place for Christians within parties. Could you comment on the role of Christian parties in a secular pluralist democracy? Yeah, I think my, my personal view is that that is problematic. That it is problematic to have a party that identifies itself as a Christian party as such, because that almost explicitly politicizes the gospel. What it says is that if you are a Christian, you should be voting for this party rather than other parties. Uh, When in my experience, when you look not just in Australia, but globally, parties that call themselves Christian parties run the risk of misleading people into thinking that they are the Christian political representatives available to be voted for at a given election, which is deeply problematic and deeply unbiblical because all Christian parties have got many aspects of their platforms that are deeply unchristian or even aspects of the Christian moral framework that they completely ignore. And that is partially because of the reality of public policy and how it operates in market economies. Market economies are highly interdependent. You can't really separate social policy from economic policy from any other aspect of policy. And so when you pull on one string, necessarily that has impacts on the other. Uh, If you just look at the greatest example that underpins all of political science and political philosophy is the tension between 
justice and freedom. And so when you look on the political spectrum, the more left people tend to lean, uh, they just have a greater affinity and allegiance to the ideal of justice. And the more right you tend to lean, and these are generalizations, but the more right you tend to lean, um, the more you have an allegiance uh, towards freedom. Both are worthy ideals. Both are deeply biblical ideals, deeply Christian ideals, and ideals that are held in the hearts of many who are not Christians as well. But necessarily, the more you work towards justice, the more you look to tackle things like social and economic inequality, you are going to have to erode on some level, at least theoretically, the concepts of freedom. So because our societies and our economics and our cultural anthropology is so interconnected, we're kidding ourselves if we think that there's anyone that can come along and say, hey, you know, I have a Christian political public policy platform. If you vote for me, we will legislate or manifest uh, the kingdom of God or the city of God in this country or in this state. You know, Augustine's work, the city of God, made it so clear about the different objectives, the different natures and the different dynamics at play in the city of God and the city of man. And necessarily, um, if the Christian worldview is true, and I believe it to be true as a follower of Jesus, both these cities, the city of God and the city of man, have to coexist. And the political process exists very much in the city of man. Bringing people of faith and values into that process is crucial, I think critical for human betterment and the improvement of the quality of life. But the attempt even at an intellectual level to try and say, this is what a Christian public policy framework should look like, I think is very, very difficult to sustain. And I haven't seen it sustained in any kind of intellectually credible way. And that's why you've never had a government in any of Australia's nine jurisdictions that have identified themselves formally with any faith. And I think that's a very healthy thing. I think our our two-party system um, is a good one. It's a healthy one. Uh, and it is one that accommodates Christians and believers in other faiths and people that hold to a faith position of no God can be involved you know, at all levels of the political spectrum on all sides. I think that's a healthy thing for democracy. So if we draw these ideas together, I'm hearing you say that individual Christians need to be clearly listening to their own consciences, need to be looking at the policy platforms that are before them, but also need to be looking at the issues of the day. And all three of those points of reference will inform the way that they vote, which might change from election to election. Do you think that Christians in Australia can and ought to be voting for issues that are largely beyond themselves? Or is it just pragmatism that suggests in the end Christians will vote for issues that stand them in the best stead in the future? Yeah, I think the reality of the human condition and the Christian faith is that it's going to be a combination of both. The Christian life, if it's being lived correctly, and we all live it imperfectly in many, many different ways, in different contexts, but I think it necessarily, one thing one thing in the heart of it necessarily is uh, the concern for other people, in my view anyway, the ideals of compassion that Jesus showed, uh, what we are called to in terms of lifting up the oppressed, of alleviating suffering to the greatest extent that we can, alongside you know, other ideals that are just as important, ideals about, about life, um, ideals about the best environment uh, in which people thrive, uh, educational opportunities, uh, providing healthcare, all of these things. I think they're all very important. And I think it's very difficult to rank them. But your 
summary of my view of how a Christian should come to think of whom they're going to vote for uh, is, is spot on, is completely accurate. And it's for that reason that I don't think there's a Christian way to vote in any given election. I know that the political spectrum in Australia is increasingly divided and increasingly skewed, and I think I think that's sad. I think Christians should be should feel like they can be involved in politics and vote in various different ways for varying reasons. During my time, and I don't want to generalise because I uh, I loved my friends outside of politics, both Christian and non-Christian, and I loved my colleagues dearly, both Christian and non-Christian, but it wouldn't be misleading to say that for the time I worked for the Labor Party, I used to go to church on Sundays and get knocked around for working for the Labor Party, and then I'd go to work on Mondays and get knocked around for being Christian. Uh, And so I think that is something that it disappointed me um, because it, for me, that that seemed like a lack of sophistication in people's understanding of the role of government and a lack of sophistication um, and intellectual integrity in how we understood uh, the role of the gospel in the hearts and minds of people. So that's why if people are listening to this and they're either agitated or confused um, or uncertain about what this means, then they've heard me absolutely correctly because the human heart is complicated and the public policy space and the market economy, as we see it in the 21st century, is incredibly complex and complicated. And so to reduce either of those things would be stupid at best um, and ignorant at worst. And to reduce the gospel of Jesus Christ to try and meet those things in any kind of holistically summarial way would be equally ridiculous and unbiblical. So I know it's difficult. I know it's complex. But I think we need to remember that this gospel of Jesus Christ Uh, is about transforming our hearts and transforming our minds. And so in that transformed state, we are called to reach out to others. We are called to work for the betterment of our community, both for those who agree with our faith-based views and those who violently disagree with our faith-based views. We're called to pray for those who disagree with us. We're called to pray for those who seek to persecute us. And we are called to work for a free society in which we're able to practice our faith uh, and live it out. Uh, whatever that might mean for a given person, but to remember that we are doing so alongside other people who disagree with us uh, and other people who believe different things. And so that is the challenge. That is why the intersection between faith and politics is so difficult. It's why it gets people so upset. But the myopic kind of knee-jerk reaction that we've become used to, both as Christians and as non-Christians, and I hope that both um, categories of people are listening to this um, podcast of yours uh, it's the, it's the myopic approach I think that has really hurt us, um, and that I think betrays the beauty and the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and also unnecessarily elevates the power and importance of politics. It's it's really important, uh, and voting is one of the most important uh, and privileged things that we get to do. Um, so we shouldn't forget that, uh, but we should just remember that it's not going to fix all of our problems. And with that kind of freedom, once we've accepted that, then we can bring a kind of prayerful, thoughtful and informed approach um, to what we think about, how we think about it and how we vote. Is there one practical way that Christians can develop a greater level of sophistication in relation to their political engagement? It is fairly binary at the moment. So your illustration of going to church on Sundays and being knocked about for working for the Labor Party and then the opposite occurring when you go to work, I think speaks volumes to the volatility of our political environment in Australia. What's a practical way that Christians could develop a little more sophistication, a little more nuance in in relation to the way that they engage politics? 
Yeah, I, I think sadly you're absolutely right. Uh, it's increasingly us and them, and it's increasingly us and them on both sides. So I think one way is to just focus on what we are called to do as Christians and how we are called to live. We are called to always be ready to give a reason um, for the faith and the hope that we have in Jesus. So we've got to equip ourselves to be able to respond when attacks come and when questions come of the gospel, uh, rather than just throwing the Bible at people or belting people over the head with assertions of what we believe, rather than explaining why we believe it, explain the upstream reasons you know, about the gospel, about what it means for human identity, for human fulfillment, for the actualization of um, the purpose of people's lives and so forth. So to always be ready, but to also remember our call to do so with graciousness and respect. Now, I'd love to see uh, more graciousness and respect from all sides of politics, but Christians, uh, we have no excuse. We have even less excuse than anyone else because we are called specifically to show graciousness and respect, not just for those that disagree with us, but especially for those who disagree with us, for those who persecute us. You know, our, our Lord and Saviour was praying for the people and forgiving the people who were killing him as they were killing him. Um, that's the level uh, of compassion and graciousness that we are called to bring. So I think that is a deeply countercultural thing that we could bring. And it's it sounds... I've said it very simply. It's obviously a very difficult thing uh, because of the emotions that are involved. And the threat of persecution is real. Don't get me wrong. I know no one's having their heads cut off in Australia for being Christian. But there is a sense of, of persecution and there are aspects of, uh, of hostility and antipathy that we do have to deal with out there. But that shouldn't be a big surprise or a big deal for us. I mean, that's promised in Scripture. If Christianity is true, and I believe that it is, then that's exactly what we would expect from a secular democracy. So that's exactly what we're getting. But that, that is one thing, I think, for us to increasingly work to be true to our call as Christians, uh, to, say, to show grace, to show forgiveness, to show compassion, to be countercultural about how we approach political discourse. Um, and the second thing, and this is something for, um, for, for both believers and non-believers, regardless of our view, that this binary us and them divisive politics that seems to be growing globally, um, it largely comes from a bunch of presuppositions that kind of assume that on some level, those on the other side are some dangerous combination of stupid and or evil. Uh, now, this was pumped into all of our heads when I worked up in politics, and it comes from all sides of politics into all sides of politics, and it really boosts this us and them narrative, and it boosts the hostility, it boosts the antipathy, and it makes it very difficult for any kind of civil discourse to happen. But the thing is, in my seven or eight years up there, I encountered people from every side of politics from all parties, independents, and all minor and major parties. And I didn't find one person that was on any level particularly stupid or particularly evil uh, on any level. So I just think that that is something we all just have to accept, that while those on the other side, for want of a better term, might not agree with us, might not like us, might even hate us, these presuppositions that we have deep, deep down inside ourselves, that they're either stupid or they're evil, uh, they're just not true. People broadly speaking, and obviously there are some very minor exceptions, but broadly speaking, people are well-intentioned. They're trying to work towards a better society. They're trying to vote accordingly. Everyone that goes into politics, uh, I can speak from direct experience, goes with good intentions. There are a lot of good hearts up there on all sides of politics, and they all get up at crazy o'clock every day, and they do their best to make Australia a better place. However much I might disagree with many of them, and however much I might dislike their politics, and however much I might even dislike them as individuals, for me to say that they're stupid or evil reduces them to something well below what I know them to be as image bearers of God himself. Uh, and so especially as Christians, but I think all of us could just do with a reality check that we're all kind of in this together. 
as Australians, we're all on the same team. Uh, as humankind, we're all in the same family, at least on some level. And so if we remember first as believers to show compassion, to show graciousness, to grow deeper in our relationship with Christ, through which we can experience that transformation and be countercultural. And secondly, if we could just remember the intrinsic value of all people, even those whom we disagree with and even those who hate us, uh, I think that will help. That might, that might all sound a bit idealistic, but I think that's where it's got to start. I think it's a generous appraisal, and I think that the concept of othering is is deeply ingrained, not simply in our political rhetoric, but now often within our evangelical rhetoric, and it uh, does us a disservice. The idea of our posture being one of humility and forgiveness and grace is a is a game changer in our public life. Let's explode now mm. out into the macro. We're approaching a federal election in Australia. What's going on socially and culturally on a global scale that we ought to be aware of? Yeah, it's a great question, actually. And something that I know in the, the three election campaigns I worked on while I was in Australia, it is obviously natural for any country to kind of look inwards and focus on itself during a campaign, which, which is perfectly fine. I think that's how democracy um, just naturally works in terms of its preoccupation of human focus. But there are big, big tectonic plates shifting globally. Uh, and these aren't new insights. These are things that I'm sure most Australians that are in touch with the outside world that are reading relatively widely and listening relatively widely would know. Uh, I mean, the shift uh, economically and geopolitically, the cultural and power shifts to Asia uh, are just absolutely enormous. Uh, you just could not overstate um, the extent of those shifts. A lot of my work takes me around cities like, you know, Singapore and Hong Kong and Tokyo and uh, Jakarta and KL and these sorts of places into southern India, uh, into countries and economies and societies that are just absolutely on fire in an economic growth capacity. And so uh, our global economics is going to be changing significantly, uh, moving from this globalizing world into what is really a new wave of um, a technological revolution that's going to be largely driven by AI, by aspects of machine learning that are really only coming to the surface now, uh, and much more we can see down the track. And the amount of capital that there is in the Asia-Pacific just makes this Asian century um, a very real thing. Uh, it's not just a, a bumper sticker or a catch line. I, I see that very clearly in traveling around um, our region here. So I think that's that's one thing. Um, I think the second thing, when you look politically at the cultural shifts in a political context, we're kind of at a crossroads moment. There are movements of politics that are seeking to put up more walls and close ranks a little bit. Uh, based on state boundaries and national identities. Um, and then there are groups that are seeking to continue pursuing that free movement of people, of capital, that we've seen largely happening since the Second World War uh, and since the globalising of the, of the market economies. So that tension is new. Uh, that hasn't happened for a while. Um, we thought this whole idea of neoliberalism and globalisation was just going to continue kind of unabated and then... I think, obviously, symbolised in large part by Donald Trump's election, but not exclusively by that. I mean, the, the challenges of Brexit and various other equivalent political events kind of in the last 30 months have made it clear that this is a an increasingly VUCA world, as they're calling it, you know, volatile, uncertain, complex and ambiguous. And when you look historically, the world's always been a VUCA world. Uh, there's always been elements of volatility 
uh, uncertainty, complexity and ambiguity, but it's increasingly so now uh, because even the international economic and financial system uh, is now in question as to what ends up happening with it. I think, in my view, uh, the underlying macroeconomic structures that led to the GFC in 2007-8-9, those were never really systemically dealt with, you know, for better or worse, whatever you think about why they happened um, or how they happened. So there's always that risk too. Markets are soft kind of globally. People are looking increasingly for absolutes. The post-truth world is kind of kicking along, underpinned by allegations of fake news, basically that's thrown at anyone that says anything that a given person doesn't like or doesn't agree with. Uh, the victimhood culture, we're increasingly quick to get offended. Uh, we're increasingly thinking with our feelings rather than with facts, with reason. Uh, we build moral frameworks, um, but we don't anchor them in any absolute moral truth because we don't like absolutes. So there's a lot of contradictions, I think, that humankind is trying to navigate through and work through. Um, and I think into that, rising up out of all of that, uh, the gospel of Jesus Christ provides a powerful, a transforming and an intellectually credible response to all of these uncertainties and all of these needs. The, the waters are increasingly stormy out there in the world, and they're going to become increasingly stormy in Australia, purely by virtue of the fact that, you know, we are such a small player globally and our economy is susceptible to so much. We think of our governments as steering this big ship of the Australian economy through waters, whereas really what's much more accurate is that we are a dinghy um, in the global economy and in the global uh, political and cultural system. And we're kind of thrown around at the whims of what the world is doing. So the key is what are we anchored to as a society and what are we anchored to as individuals? Um, and, you know, in my experience, both in an intellectual and an experiential sense, the gospel of Jesus Christ provides the only credible and legitimate transcendent anchor um, for the human identity um, for our collective sense of who we are and for our purpose. We need to think more deeply and carefully about who we are, and then we need to think deeply and carefully about where we're going. Uh, and I think a re-embracing of the concept of truth, of the reality of absolutes, and doing so in a civil uh, and harmonious way, I think those are going to be important for the Australian people going forward, not just in this election, because this election is important, but it's by no means the make or break of what happens to our country in the, the rest of the 21st century. Uh, it is important, but we just need to be aware of the increasing volatility and complexity and work to find you know, an anchor for each other collectively and for ourselves individually as well. Max Jiganathan, you've outlined a compelling narrative for the Australian church to in be engaged in the political realm in Australia, not simply for politics' sake, but for the common good and the growth of the kingdom. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me, Andrew. God bless. If you've enjoyed How in God's Name Should I Vote, you might like to rate and review us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts from. I'm Andrew Palmer. Thanks to our producers, Katrina Rowe and Liam Denny, and our online content manager, Andrew Morris. Production by Richard Hamwee. Thank you.